And thus begins the 20th installment of this thing which I call book. Welcome back to Book, a Bible podcast for everybody. I'm Josh Wade. If you're joining us for the first time, the premise of the show is simple, an honest and open-minded exploration of the actual contents of the Judeo-Christian Bible, with special attention to the history which produced the text and the literary form and the meaning of the text itself. Here is a very brief recap of where we've come so far. The first book of the Bible is the Torah, divided into five scrolls in which the ancient family of Israel gave their own account of their transformation into a nation. After the Torah, we looked at Joshua and Judges, which detailed the messy business of the people of Israel inhabiting the land that would be the nation of Israel. Ruth and Samuel told how Israel went about choosing kings, and Kings and Chronicles gave two very different perspectives on the national period and the performances of those kings. After a division into a northern and southern kingdom and a nasty civil war, Israel's national period came to an end, the northern kingdom being defeated by Assyria in the 8th century BCE and the southern kingdom falling to Babylon in the 6th. After Kings and Chronicles, we took a break from the historical throughline to examine some of the specialized literature of the Bible. The poetry of the Psalms and the wisdom writings like Proverbs, Kohelet, and Job And now we turn our gaze to yet another variety of biblical text, one which gives us a side door back into history, but from a very unique and easily misunderstood perspective. We're going to read the writings of the prophets. So far, we've seen prophets as characters in Israel's historical pageant, and we even speculated that they are the likely authors or editors of the scroll called Kings. Now we encounter several books written by individual prophets, or at least compiled from their public speaking by followers or assistants. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets to get his own book of the Bible, and that text is our focus for today. But first, a few words in review about prophets. While most people today imagine prophets as hopped-up holy men roaming the streets predicting the end of the world, their actual role was much more practical and relevant, even political. Prophets were less like seers or far-off dreamers offering vague cryptic pronouncements of gloom and hellfire, and more like pundits offering analysis of urgent contemporary crises. And most prophets weren't delivering their missives to random citizens on the street, but rather pointing their fingers directly at kings. This is certainly true of Isaiah, who appears to have been an official prophet of the royal court of Judah during the reign of kings like Ahaz and Hezekiah in the 8th century BCE. We saw him a couple of times in the scroll of kings. Unlike prophets such as Samuel and Elijah, we have little to no biographical information about Isaiah. He does not appear to be a priest, nor does he have any named career other than being a prophet of the court. The book which bears his name is long and dense and does not have a friendly narrative structure. We often have to consult the corresponding history and kings to bring it into focus. For purposes that will become apparent as we move along, we're going to divide Isaiah's scroll into two sections. The first consists of what we call chapters 1 through 39. One Isaiah, or first Isaiah as we'll call it, corresponds with the 8th century setting in which we met Isaiah in 2 Kings. The backdrop is the growing threat of the Assyrian Empire and the bad choices of Judah's kings. 
we get five whole chapters of straight-up open-mic prophecy before we get any sort of introduction to the man Isaiah himself. But those first five chapters tell us some interesting things about him. His message in the first part of the book is one of dire warning to the kingdom of Judah for losing its way. Most of the kings in his lifetime were corrupt and had rejected the traditional Davidic covenantal religion of Israel's past. Here in chapter 1, Isaiah predicts drastic consequences for the once great city of Jerusalem, starting in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was once full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your rulers are rebels and cronies of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after gifts. They do not bring justice to the orphan and the widow's cause does not reach them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get satisfaction from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will perish. But Isaiah is not simply a crank calling down fire and brimstone on all the corrupt fat cats. The second thread running throughout the first section of Isaiah is a salient hope that Judah will be restored to its former glory. This is from chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations will flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war any more. Isaiah imagines a day a triumphant day when not only will Judah be restored as God's mountain, but it will be established as a shining beacon for the whole world and when warfare between the nations of the earth will end. Now, for some reason in our own day, when people read and remember biblical prophecy, they tend to remember the gloom and doom stuff while the hope is often overlooked. Now, we'll push that point even harder when we get to apocalyptic literature. In both of those excerpts we just read, we observe one of the remarkable distinctives of Isaiah's thinking and writing, his use of Zion or mountain of God imagery. Now, you remember when we talked about kings and prophets, we observed that they had two very different and often conflicting ways of looking at life, religion, and current events. We compared them rather cheaply to modern conservatives and liberals. Well, another way of summarizing the relationship of these viewpoints is the contrast between two mountains, Sinai and Zion. Sinai is the mountain of the prophets, a lost location where God showed up once briefly to deliver a message through his servant Moses. For prophets, God is transcendent, elusive, always thwarting man's expectations. Zion, on the other hand, is Jerusalem, the mountain of the palace and the temple, where God permanently established his authority on earth. For kings, God is present, immovable, and predictable. And yet we find in Isaiah a prophet who frequently invokes Zion and refers to Israel's God as Adonai Savaot, the Lord of hosts. That means the God of the army, the God who leads our military into victory against our enemies. 
Isaiah is an extremely royal prophet, and his vision of Israel's future does not involve the dissolution or abandonment of Israel's monarchy. The monarchy itself will be at the center of the nation's rescue. More of that anon. Now, in chapter 6, we come to a very different sort of text, something we might have expected at the very beginning of the book. It's the closest we get to an origin story for Isaiah. Let's give it a listen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His presence fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Each of the major prophets gets what is referred to as a calling episode, a description of the events which began their careers as God's messengers. Isaiah's is a strange vision with unearthly beings flying around the throne of Israel's God. This is very much a precursor to the apocalyptic texts in which outrageous symbolic metaphors and images are employed to present ideas and realities which could not be otherwise communicated. In this case, we have seraphim, which is the Hebrew word for flames. And so we strain to imagine beings made of flame flitting around with six wings. And by the way, a nitpicky side note here. These are not angels. Angels in the Bible, whatever else they are, are humanoid beings who are never said to have wings. Medieval European artistic interpretation has given us the ubiquitous image of the little winged naked baby angel. But that's just a messy mutation and cross-pollination of several distinct biblical images with a little linguistic error thrown in for good measure. The word cherub, for example, was unknown to medieval rabbis who decided it must be the Hebrew keruv, like a child, and artists just ran with it. In truth, the word derives from Akkadian or perhaps Babylonian and describes a winged lion, the symbol of royal power in the ancient Near Eastern world. All of this should keep us humble as we attempt to affirm or dismiss any particular interpretation of the Bible. Okay, end of rant, back on track. So, Isaiah is enlisted to act as God's messenger to the kings of Judah, and his unclean lips are purified by a piece of coal. Strange as it sounds to us, there is actually evidence of this very practice from the cultures surrounding ancient Israel in the Near East. And what is the message Isaiah is to carry? Well, it turns out it's a very specific one for a very specific crisis. We discussed this in great detail in our Christmas episode because this is the source of the famous Emmanuel passage, wherein Isaiah heralds the birth of an important child. You can listen to that other podcast for an in-depth discussion of the New Testament treatment of the passage, but right now we just want to see how it works right here in context. 
Chapter 7 presents Isaiah's words to King Ahaz, a confrontation which is described in 2 Kings chapter 16. Judah is at war with Israel in the north, which is in league with the neighboring state of Syria. Desperate and afraid, King Ahaz seeks protection from the brutal and growing empire of Assyria. Isaiah insists that Judah must remain unaligned and entreats Ahaz not to make a foolish alliance with a huge enemy just to stave off a couple of small ones. Here are Isaiah's words to the king. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin is with child and is about to bear a son and will call him Emmanuel. By the time he knows how to reject the bad and choose the good, the people will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows how to refuse the bad and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Isaiah says, don't get in bed with the bad guys, just be patient and God will deal with them. The image he employs to announce a hopeful future is the birth of a child, an image he picks up several times in the book. A virgin is about to have a baby is most likely a reference to a maiden of the court, to the imminent birth of a new king. Once more, Isaiah's royal theology is showing. There is hope in a new king, hope that he won't be as cowardly and reckless as Ahaz. Now, lest we doubt that Isaiah's prophecy is meant first and foremost for his own moment in time, he repeats it again in similar language in chapter 8. Here in verse 3, I was intimate with the prophetess, Mrs. Isaiah, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means make haste to the plunder. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, that's Israel and Syria, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And wouldn't you know it, Isaiah is proven to be right, according to the accounts of Second Kings. The next king is Hezekiah, a sensible and faithful king, and in his lifetime both Israel and Syria are devastated by Assyria, and yet Assyria fails to conquer Judah. Isaiah goes on to proclaim in a famous passage from chapter 9 more hope for Israel's imminent and distant future, once more employing the hopeful specter of childbirth. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and all authority will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Mighty God is a Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father is a Peaceable Ruler. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is another popular messianic text, and we'll have a few words to say about Messiah later in the podcast and more so in future shows. For now, this is more typical Isaiah. God is going to rescue Israel and turn things around, and he will not do this in spite of Israel's throne and Israel's kings. He will accomplish this through the monarchy itself. 
The rest of Isaiah's first book consists of some sharp warnings against wayward Judah and its enemies like Assyria, Babylon, Philistia, Moab, and others, peppered with hopeful anticipation of the vindication of David's family, the rightful kings of Judah in Isaiah's eyes. Now, Isaiah even predicts or perhaps responds to the Assyrian defeat and exile of the northern kingdom of Israel, promising that, quote, a remnant shall return. At the same time, he predicts a similar fate for Jerusalem should its current kings not change their ways. Then, in chapter 40, something happens. There's a palpable change in tone and orientation. And then I take a drink. The historical backdrop and central message of Isaiah himself seems to shift. This is why we are identifying two different books of Isaiah, though our Jewish and Christian Bibles do not make any such division. While chapters 1 through 39 overflowed with warning and hope in the face of the 8th century crisis of Assyrian aggression, chapters 40 through 66 seem to bear a different message for a different time. This is from chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It becomes clear as we read on that the crisis behind these chapters is no longer the fear of Judah in the face of the Assyrian threat, but the sorrow of the citizens of Judah who have been dragged off to exile in Babylon. Isaiah is preaching comfort to the people after the fall of Jerusalem, some 200 years after the Assyrian threat dissolved. This presents a potential problem for our reading of the book. Did Isaiah, after addressing the crisis of his own day, look into the future and predict the rise of Babylon, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the exile? Or did someone else write the Babylon material under his name? This is only a problem if we have an overly simplistic and anachronistic notion of prophets and authorship, if we insist that a man named Isaiah must have sat down and wrote this entire book on a Tuesday afternoon in the presence of a notary public. The reality is that Isaiah the man, whoever he really was, didn't necessarily write any of this material. It's possible, perhaps likely in this case, that Isaiah's words and ideas were captured and recorded by a group of students, personal disciples of the prophet. Is it possible that Isaiah gained some insight into Judah's future? Absolutely. But it's also possible that there was an Isaianic school of prophecy which preserved his ideas and his message for subsequent generations and that this group is responsible for the message of hope found in the so-called second book of Isaiah. And what is that message of hope? Well, remember Isaiah's response to the Assyrian crisis. Hope will spring from the line of David. God will use the monarchy and kings like Hezekiah to rescue Judah. Well, that was at a time when Judah still inhabited the land and Jerusalem stood secure. Now Jerusalem has been razed to the ground and the people of Judah are scattered throughout the pagan world in exile. Appeals to Zion and kings and Jerusalem are tragically pointless. The author of Isaiah must find new and innovative words of hope in these devastating new circumstances. Among the words of comfort and encouragement, an interesting new thread develops. Chapter 42 begins like this. Behold my servant, 
whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah imagines a mysterious servant who becomes a central presence throughout the rest of the book. This is chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. Instead of a victorious king, Isaiah now envisions a lowly, suffering nobody, a man of sorrows who seems to embody Israel itself and all of its troubles. His suffering, which is their suffering, is also the means somehow by which God is rescuing and restoring his people. This is one of the foundational strands of what will be known as messianic expectation, though the expression, the Messiah, does not appear in the Hebrew Bible. We'll have a lot more to say about messianic expectation when we examine the New Testament Gospels and their frequent appeals to Isaiah. That's for another day. For now, it's sufficient to observe that the suffering servant of Isaiah, like the humble son of man we'll meet in the book of Daniel, is the embodiment of the hope that Judah's exile will be ended and Jerusalem will be restored. And the return from exile is what Isaiah's message is all about. Here's one last passage from chapter 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and will succeed in the things for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. Now verse 11 here, the bit about my word will not return to me empty, is often used today as a sort of self-authorizing defense of the Bible since many Christians today refer to the Bible as the Word of God. But not only is that anachronistic, it misses the point of the passage. The Word of God here is not the Bible, but the actual Word, the will of Israel's God, specifically his plan to bring Israel back from exile. The restoration of the nation, like so many other things in the Bible and in the ancient world, is expressed in agricultural terms. God will plant Judah back in the land like a seed, and it will grow and prosper. The weeds of destruction will die, and the foliage of new life will spring up. Now, there's a lot more we could say about Isaiah, but let's wrap up our discussion with some concluding observations. Questions about authorship and New Testament invocations have dominated modern discussions about Isaiah. I hope that in our overview, we've allowed the original voice of the text to be heard. Whatever else Isaiah or his students might have been saying about the near or distant future, the primary message is clear. Hope for people hurting right now. Hope for the people quivering in the shadows of a violent empire comfort for those dragged from their homes into forced exile. 
we do well to remember that texts like Isaiah were not written to fuel theological debates in future millennia, but to answer true human suffering in the present. Next, we'll look at the other two major prophets of Israel, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both offering their own responses to the horrors of exile, one at home in devastated Jerusalem and one in the strange land of Babylon. The literature they produced is harrowing and beautiful. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I urge you to share, like, tweet, tweak, cleep, blog, tumble, stumble, bumble, chumble, and flues it to your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, you can email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to answer it right here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's going to do it for me, Bible Pals. I will catch you next time. Thank you.